In his State of the Union address, President Biden said this: "Quote: I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages." In the same speech where Nixon announced that he was shutting the gold window, no longer redeeming dollars for gold for foreign central banks, he didn't want it to be just a negative speech. So he said, "I want to do something positive." We know this from the tapes where he discusses what he's going to say with his advisors. The famous he, tapes, okay. The famous tapes. He says,、uh, "In order to you know look like I'm in charge of things, I'm going to announce wage and price controls." So prices and wages were frozen for a while. And then they were allowed to rise only gradually, but the result was shortages of lots of things,、uh, and that did not help economic recovery. And as soon as the controls came off, prices shot back up to where they would have been.、Uh, the shortages went away, thank goodness, but it it only temporarily suppressed the appearance、uh, of inflation. Did you know that events such as pandemics, oil shocks, and wars In and of themselves, don't cause inflation to skyrocket. Rather, it's our government's response to these events that rocket inflation. Hey there, news peelers! Today is March eighteenth, two thousand twenty-two, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel Dot News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share. Sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the peel dot news is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink. And let's get into it. Besides Russia's war with Ukraine, there's another development that's dominating our news: inflation, which reached 7.9 percent in February. In her GOP rebuttal to President Biden's speech before Congress, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds stated the following: "Quote: We're now one year into his presidency." And instead of moving America forward, it feels like President Biden and his party have sent us back in time to the late '70s and early '80s, when runaway inflation was hammering families. Are the years between the late '70s and early '80s a good comparison point for our current rising inflation? What were home mortgage interest rates like back then, and how often have Americans experienced? Double-digit inflation in our history. In this episode, Professor White answers these questions and explains much more, such as what was inflation like during the previous major pandemic, the Spanish flu. How did the Fed handle inflation during the Great Depression? What did Milton Friedman and Ben Bernanke say about well, about our economy and inflation? 
And does fiat money, i.e. the US dollar, cause inflation? Mr. Lawrence White is a professor of theory and history of banking and money in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. He has been a visiting lecturer at the Swiss National Bank and the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. His forthcoming book is Better Money, Fiat, Gold, or Bitcoin. I spoke with Professor White when everyone was concerned about inflation at 7.5%, which was just a few days ago, before inflation inched higher to where it is now, at 7.9%. To learn more about Professor White, his many other accomplishments and publications, visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor White and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor White, it is such a pleasure to have you in our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thanks for having me. So let's get right into it. How does our current inflation, which is about 7.5% as it was clocked back in January, compare to other high inflationary periods in our history? Well, uh, it's the highest we've had. That is a 12-month period, month. Uh, so they're comparing January 2022 to January 2021. It's the highest 12-month inflation rate we've had uh, since back in 1982. So a long time. 7.5%, uh, as you said, over the last 12 months. And that's a big jump from where it was just eight months ago. In March of uh, 2020, it was only 0.2%. So oh, it is a big jump. It's high and it's it's rising rapidly, which is unfortunately reminiscent of what happened in the early 70s and the late 70s, where if you look at a chart of the consumer price index, it rises quite steeply, fortunately uh, declines fairly steeply after the peaks. So we can only hope we reach the peak soon and start declining soon. It, it, uh, inf inflation depreciates quickly as well. Is that what you're saying? It's just stated? Yes. So the if you look at historically at the peaks in the CPI uh, measured on this 12-month rolling basis, uh, it comes down about as quickly as it goes up uh, in, in the 19... Uh, the inflation that peaked around 1975, the one that peaked in 1980, that was the case. It looks like a Christmas tree. Uh, it's steep going up and steep coming down. So we have to hope that happens uh, this time. I do hope that happens uh, for, for many reasons, including the price of used cars that are just uh, uh, through the roof. Uh, you mentioned 1982. This has been the highest 12-month uh, period inflation since 1982. What was it back then in 1982? Uh, it was on in February 1982 compared to one year earlier, it was 7.6%. Yeah. 
And that was coming down. That was coming down from the peak in March of 1980, which was 14.6%. And that's the peak since uh, the very early years of the Fed, which happened to coincide with World War I. So that back way back then, we had inflation of close to 20%. But not since then until, uh, and double digit inflation has been pretty rare. Thank God. Until the 70s and uh, early 80s. And since then, we've, we've had pretty moderate inflation uh, that is mostly below 5% and stretches in which it was you know, averaging 2%. Uh, so this is a big break from the history since, let's say, 1990. If, if you average inflation by calendar year, 2021's inflation rate for the whole year was 4.7%. And that was the highest annual rate since 1990 when it was 5.4%. But that figure, 4.7%, leaves out January of 2022. And so the Average for 2022 is starting out higher than that. Much higher, yeah. Um, is the acceleration rate of the current inflationary period, the last 12 months, is the acceleration faster, frighteningly faster than previous periods or similar? It, it is a little bit faster. Um, as I said, uh, just over the last eight months, it's gone from 0.2 to 7.5. So, so in the uh, let's say 1970s and 1980s, it did the inflation did go higher than our current level of seven and a half percent, but right, it it its acceleration was not as fast. Was it comparable? It was comparable, not quite as fast, and it was starting from a higher plateau. Yeah. So, so especially the peak in 1980 started from a plateau. Uh, looking at the chart here, <laughs> uh, of above five percent, uh, but it you know rose another eight percentage points. You said that in, I think it was 1980, you said inflation reached 14.6%. Uh, right. By, the, by then, interest rates, had had they caught up with inflation? Because right now we live in this weird world that inflation is 7.5%, but interest rates have not caught up. Was that the case where interest rates also high? They caught up faster. It is, you're right, we are in a weird world. And it's really a little perplexing that people are accepting such negative interest rates in inflation adjusted terms, in real terms, as we say, in terms yeah. of purchasing power. Exactly. It's a guaranteed loser. Uh, but back around 1980, mortgage rates were rising into double digits and they reached higher than 15%. Um, More I don't than fifteen percent for home mortgage. Yeah, 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 yeah. How and, could anyone afford that? Well, if their income was rising at fifteen percent, they could afford it. But I see. It, and was uh, it was it rising? Because uh, for the last few years, for the last fifteen years or so, in the two thousands and two thousand tens, correct me if I'm wrong, but incomes were somewhat stagnant, right? It's often the case that uh, incomes rise a little later than prices. Uh, eventually, they catch up. I mean, since 1980, people are earning more in real terms. So their salaries have gone up more than inflation, more than the price level. Yeah. But, but 
when there's a spike in inflation, they don't catch up immediately. Um, but people are doing the things you expect them to do when they're unhappy with the real wage they're being offered, which is they're reluctant to take the job until the wage gets even higher. Yeah. And maybe we'll see more of that wage increases. Um, is it appropriate to compare our current inflation with the inflation of the 1970s and 80s? Uh, sometimes I feel like people do that for two reasons. One, because uh, it just it's within living memory. Uh, you know, my mom and my dad and my uncles will always talk about it. And then also because of Volcker and, 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 and how the Fed was so active. Is it because of that or is there like a different period in American history that's more akin to current inflation? No, I actually think the 70s and 80s are probably the best comparison, uh, especially the 80s, early 80s, because we have the same monetary regime as we had then. Uh, that is, we've been off any link to the gold standard since 1971. So we can talk about the gold standard later, but the, the kind of constraint on inflation that the gold standard provided uh, was removed. And you can say, well, in the early 70s, the, the Fed was sort of grappling about uh, with how to deal with this new freedom it had and had to learn uh, how not to set off double digit inflation. Um, so this is a kind of break with the, the improvement we've seen since 1990. But in the sense that I think it's uh, actually, there's a comparison with those earlier inflation peaks, which is that both of them were accompanied by oil price shocks. And a lot of people wanted to blame the inflation entirely on the oil price shock. But if you look more closely, you'll see that it was mostly monetary policy. It was mostly rapid growth in the money stock that was driving the inflation. And that's true today too. So the pandemic has been responsible for a slowdown in real output. You think about inflation in very simple terms as the price level rising because more money is chasing the same amount of goods or there's more money chasing each bundle of goods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, there was some drop in the number of bundles being produced for a while, but we're back up uh, to the output we had before the pandemic. And yet prices are a lot higher because we created a lot more money. Federal Speaking Reserve. much of that, that, so really going back, pandemic was one of the many causes, uh, not the cause as is constantly sort of talked about in, in popular news. Is that a fair re-paraphrasing of what you just shared with us? Monetary yeah. policies is yeah. responsible for much of it. That's right. So if you look at the 7.5% inflation and ask how much of that is because output was shrinking and how much was because the money supply was growing. It's, well, it's like seven percentage point. Well, I haven't broken it down carefully, but it's something like one percentage point is accounted for by shrinkage and output and the other six and a half is expansionary monetary policy, which is, is similar to the oil price shocks. How similar is inflation now because we're in a pandemic, I bring that up for that specific reason. 
to the time of the Spanish flu? And I asked that question, appreciating that there is it's that question is a probably a little bit difficult to answer for two reasons. One, lack of data. They didn't compile data as we do now, economic statistics, and also the fact that World War One was going on at the same time. Yeah. Sort of ended when the Spanish flu began. So that sort of muddies the picture, but I'd love to get your opinion on that. Uh, so the Fed was a new institution, and up to 1914, there was an international gold standard that the U.S. was part of. But in the First World War, all the combatant countries in Europe went off the gold standard, basically so their governments could print more money to help pay for the war. And a lot inflation. of gold, that caused a lot of inflation in Europe. It, it doubled and tripled the price level in some countries, but it drove a lot of gold to the U.S. because the U.S. was still on the gold standard. So gold bought more in the U.S. than it would buy in Europe. Uh, and that swelled the coffers of the Federal Reserve System and thereby swelled the money supply in the U.S. And so we got that together with the Fed contributing to financing the U.S. role in the war. Uh, meant that we got a huge expansion in the money supply in the U.S. and that drove inflation up to, as I said, near 20 percent. It was 18 percent in 1918, which was the year of the Spanish flu. So America being flush with gold coming from overseas, that's somewhat, I wouldn't say similar, but that's somewhat sort of akin to the just more money in the system printed by the Fed. Um, how about the pandemic? How, did the pandemic play a big role in inflation? Uh, well, I'd, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to look and see if we can see a decline in the output of goods and services. Uh, and I don't think we do. I mean, it was a boom time. Yeah, yeah. The, the recession came in 1921. That's when they finally put the brakes on and prices fell quite a bit. But I don't think real output was, I think it was pretty much full capacity in 1918, although I have to double check that. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about gold? You and I discussed this um, uh, right now, continue that, and the inflationary pendulum, if there is one. If Congress passes a stimulus package, say something similar to President Biden's stalled Build Back Better program, how will that impact inflation now? Professor Sheffy, director of MIT's Supply Chain Management Program, talks about that in Season 1, Episode 36. And now that we do have an infrastructure plan, what are the challenges ahead? And what's the history of America's infrastructure, like a bridge across the Atlantic? It's no joke as Professor Petrowski of Duke University tells us in Season 1, Episode 33, a bridge across the Atlantic was an openly discussed possibility more than 100 years ago. For your convenience, we have organized these episodes into a U.S. Economy podcast series, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. And here's another one. Why is it that our government was paying Civil War pension? in 2020, 155 years after the end of that bloody war. Professor Kogan of the Hoover Institution 
explains the history of America's entitlement programs. In Season 2, Episode 10, the title of his book is The High Cost of Good Intentions. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor White. Professor White, historically speaking, is inflation inevitable? Meaning, is it the case that sooner or later it will happen? I don't think so. Uh, Inflation means a sustained rise in prices in general, or if you want to invert it, it's a sustained fall in the purchasing power of the monetary unit. It goes on year after year. Uh, And if you just think about it in simple terms of supply and demand, it isn't inevitable that the supply of money keeps growing at a rapid rate. So under our current monetary regime, where the quantity of money is controlled by the central bank, by the Federal Reserve System, they can avoid inflation by careful monetary policy. And uh, we've seen that they kept inflation lower for a couple of decades, um, like right, mid-1990s to 2020, well, it's a good period of 25 years, kept inflation below 5%. Um, so we rely on the central bank to keep an adequate scarcity of money. Uh, and they can do that. At least they can do that if they're not subject to political pressures to do something else. In some countries, you might say inflation is inevitable because the central bank is the captive of the treasury or of the uh, Congress or the fiscal authorities. They are pressured to print money to pay the government's bills. So it's hard to avoid inflation in a system like that. Kind of like uh, in Turkey, they just fired their head of central bank or something to that impact. Yeah. Turkey, Argentina, Lebanon have all had this problem. Um, The other sense in which it's not inevitable is that you can have a monetary regime that doesn't leave the supply of money in the hands of an authority that can be pressured. So we've already mentioned the gold standard. Under the classical gold standard, the domestic government doesn't control the quantity of money in the country. Gold flows in and out depending on where it can buy the most. And so the money supply is not under the control of the domestic authorities. Are you suggesting that had the Fed had a different type of monetary policy, the supply chain crisis may not have caused inflation? Yes, in the sense that I think very little of the inflation is due to supply chain problems. And even then, some of the so-called supply chain problems are demand overwhelming supply. And you have to ask what's driving demand up so much. And basically, it's easy monetary policy. Uh, A lot of that newly created money went to the Treasury, who wrote checks to everybody and put a lot of money in people's pockets, which they delayed spending right away because in the worst parts of the pandemic, there wasn't much you could go out and do. Yeah, yeah. So, So people built up their money balances. But now they started spending and durable goods. Uh, producers were not sitting on huge inventories, and yet demand for durable goods went way up. And so then you got what's called a supply chain problem, where the inventories are tapped out until the factories can 
produce enough stuff to replace what's been sold. So one could suggest that had we not had the humongous quantitative easing, I think right. it was $12 billion as a purchase a month. I forget what the number is. Uh, and we didn't have the government checks from the treasury. The supply chain challenges would not have become a crisis even. They wouldn't have been as severe. That's right. You you still had a, a negative shock to the economy from people staying home either uh, from work, either to avoid being exposed to the virus or because they were locked down and not allowed to go to work uh, or their workplace shut down. Uh, so that, that would have boosted prices a bit. But what I am saying is that that's only a fraction of uh, why prices have gone up so much. Had people not been flush with cash, they wouldn't have been able to demand such a huge quantities of goods. Right. And that goes back to monetary policy, both from the, the the administration as well as the Fed, right? That's right. So traditionally, we separate monetary policy from government spending, which is fiscal policy. Yeah. But in this occasion, the Fed has bought an awful lot of the debt that the Treasury has been issuing. So it's hard to make that distinction. A lot of the newly created money went to the Treasury. So that's, the Fed, that's like the, the Fed. government uh, lending to itself, <laughs> buying its own bonds. Exactly. So the Fed is now flush with treasury bonds and the treasury has a lot more to spend and they have spent it. And that's why you're saying that inflation is not necessarily inevitable. If you do have some sort of monetary policy that makes more economic sense and you sort of put away politics or what have you, there could be a long, long, long period in which there is no frightening inflation of any sort. Right. So if you keep money adequately scarce, then you preserve its purchasing power. Now, it's not going to be perfectly smooth because there are going to be real events that interrupt the supply of goods. But the changes in the purchasing power of money that result from those are much smaller than what we've seen. Um, you sort of touched on this in the previous segment, but I want to make sure I have it. Um, I understand it correctly. Have inflation have inflationary periods always been ignited by events or incidents, such as in this case the pandemic or World War One, or you aptly identified the, the the dual oil crisis in the 1970s, or do have we had inflationary periods that just sort of economic factors sort of just I don't know, almost uh, uh, an undercurrent, they sort of converge together and create an inflationary period. Those kind of events by themselves uh, rarely amount to real output dropping more than two or 3%. And so they can't account for prices rising more than two or three percentage points. But if the central bank responds to the negative shock, by saying, well, we need to stabilize the economy by pumping more money into it, then that can uh, amplify the effect on the price level. And I think that basically describes what's happened in the pandemic and what happened in response to the rise in the price of imported oil back in the 70s and 80s. That's interesting. Uh, so what you're, what you're describing is that some of the 
inflationary periods that I that 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 I identified post World War One and and uh, the 1970s, 80s, and now. Yes, there are events that are associated with them, but those events in and of itself, in and of themselves, could not have created inflation to such a level. It's the monetary That's, response. Am I saying that correctly? Exactly. Yeah. I've, another way to get a handle on this is look across countries. Uh-huh. Why, why does Argentina have 50% inflation while the U.S. has 7% inflation? Well, it's not, not because they have so much bigger a supply shock. It's because their government prints so much more money. Is, is, isn't Argentina's uh, currency, at least this used to be the case, pegged to the dollar? Oh, not for a long time. Not for a long time, I see. Um, uh, and it, it, it was for a while, and that killed inflation in Argentina. But it also constrained the amount of money the government could print to pay its bills. And they eventually grew tired of that constraint. <laughs> Politics gets in the way all the time. We're going to talk about that, actually. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by what you have to say about that. Um, I want to go back to, to our discussion of uh, the, our currency and gold. The U.S. dollar is now fiat money, right? Right. Um, so inflation was different, let's say in the in the 19th century and early 20th century, because we ha- we were on a gold standard, right? Right. And how was that different? You you discussed that a little bit. I mean, you really needed. Was it so detached from uh, from politics because you just needed gold to print more money? Yeah. So there was no central bank. There wasn't any Federal Reserve. Uh, the quantity of money consisted of coins in the hands of the public, banknotes in the hands of the public, commercial banks provided the paper currency, and checking accounts held at commercial banks. And the banknotes and the checking accounts were redeemable for gold coin, and the scarcity of gold limited how much money banks could uh, create. And so the money supply only grew at the rate uh, that the gold stock grew, and that's limited by the economics of gold mining. And historically, it grew at somewhere between one and four percent per year, maybe two and a half percent on average. Uh, and so, you're not going to get much inflation. And in fact, if output is growing at two and a half percent a year, which it was in the late 19th century, you basically get zero inflation. So, the U.S. rejoined the gold standard after the Civil War in 1879, and the international gold standard was dismantled in 1914. If you look at those two dates, 1879 and 1914, the US price level ends up almost exactly where it started. So inflation over that period was basically zero. Wow. Uh, And there were, I mean, it did decline for some years slowly and then came back up. So it wasn't constant, but the average inflation rate was zero. What's interesting about that period, so you know, 1879, that's, uh, that's 14 years after the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, you are in the thick of America's industrial revolution and economic might. I mean, railroads and, and what have you. That's right. So even though we were on a gold standard and supply of money uh, was constrained to the amount of physical gold, the economy hummed along. I wouldn't even say hummed along. It was 
it was full throttle. Yeah, there were a few financial panics to yeah. make things exciting uh, because we had a weak banking system in the U.S. But yeah, it, you had a curious combination that uh, when the economy grew faster, you have more goods uh, per dollar, the prices of goods fell. So deflation actually, uh, apart from the panics, falling prices corresponded to everything getting cheaper because everything was more abundant. Yeah. Uh, and in, in that kind of situation, deflation is benign. We normally think of deflation as a terrible thing because we have the Great Depression in mind. Yeah. And in, in the Great Depression, it was a terrible thing, but it wasn't driven by more abundant goods in the Great Depression, of course. It was driven by a collapsing money supply, which is a whole different story. Listening to what you shared about the period of you know, 1879 to 1914 and the gold standard, without getting too much into it, it just seems like fiat money is a terrible thing for inflation. Are there any pros, any pluses to having fiat money? Um, the, a famous uh, economist from the early 20th century named uh, Irving Fisher uh -huh. once said that uh, Inflation, sorry, uh, paper money has proved a curse to every country that's tried it. <laughs> so we're and, in the middle of that curse now. Huh? Well, and at the time he wrote, that was a reasonable thing to say, because almost every paper money experiment had blown up into high inflation. The famous John Law uh, situation in revolutionary France, sorry, pre-revolutionary France. Um, yeah, the English and, banker that had gone to Louis XIV. Yeah, right. Um, and other paper money experiments like the, the Continental during the American Revolution and the Greenback during the Civil War, they had all been high inflation currencies. So the question is, can you restrain the quantity of money under a fiat standard? And the answer is yes, you can, if you set your mind to it. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing, then it's a disaster. Or if you're under political pressure to print too much money, you get high inflation. But in principle, it it can be used for inflation control. And so uh, an economist like uh, Milton Friedman, who very much hated inflation, nonetheless wanted to get the US off the gold standard and what was left of it uh, in the 1960s, which was the Bretton Woods system, uh -huh, uh -huh. because he thought now we will be able to more carefully control the quantity of money. And therefore, we can get consistently low inflation. Was, well, at the time of saying that, did Milton Friedman have a powerful central bank in mind in the U.S.? He had a, in mind a central bank that would listen to him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of politicians. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about politicians, political economy, and good or, I guess, bad inflation. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click 
the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you! Professor White, we talked about politicians so much and the pressure they can put on our monetary system. So I got to ask this question now. Um, can politicians and policymakers anticipate inflation? Uh, this, this In 2021, it sort of caught them by surprise with respect to the duration of, of, of inflation. Have in the past, have they been surprised? Uh, they've frequently been surprised. <laughs> <laughs> With everything I mean, at their disposal, they're surprised. But, but to be fair, lots of private forecasters have been surprised too. And lots of people who bought bonds with very low yields have been surprised. Um, but policymakers aren't any better than people in the private sector who are trying to forecast inflation. And sometimes they're worse because they tend to err on the side of overly rosy scenarios. If you actually look at the Fed's forecasting record, because they published their uh, expectation of the inflation rate in the coming year. At the end of 2020, they were forecasting that inflation in 2021 would be 1.8%. Oh boy. <laughs> Turned out to be 4.7%. So they were off a bit. At the end of 2021, they forecast for this year, 2022, an inflation rate of 2.6%. And so far it's 7. So far it's 7.5%, but we're just one month into it still. I think they might want to have that one back already because uh, I would take a you know even money odds bet that it's not going to be 2.6 or lower. Even if they um, the increase inflation by 50 point basis? Yeah, even if they raise interest rates. So I don't think they have the sort of gumption to tighten as much as necessary to get inflation down by the end of the year. Uh, to what they were forecasting, 2.6%. I mean, we'll see. Um, you talk about gumption, and that really takes us to f sort of the Fed's, uh, Fed's relationship with politicians. Um, have politicians traditionally, traditionally in our history botched the response to inflation, have there been any politicians that have gotten it right? I mean, everyone says how President Reagan fixed the economy and the inflation, or is that the case? Well, I would actually go to Jimmy Carter. Uh, so it's it, it's an interesting case. Um, Jimmy Carter first appointed someone named G. William Miller to run the Fed, huh? and under Miller, inflation quickly shot up to double digits. So that was a mistake, but to Carter's credit, he told Miller, uh, I'm kicking you upstairs, you can run the treasury department, but I need somebody with some credibility to run the Fed now. And he appointed Paul Volcker, Good who, move. Was, who was a known inflation hawk. That is, he was willing to suffer the slings and arrows of media criticism for causing a recession, which his tight money policy did but there wasn't any way to get the inflation down uh, and avoid a recession. 
unless you could magically convince everybody that inflation is coming down, so moderate the prices and wages you ask for. But of course, they had to reestablish their credibility. So it was a painful disinflation, uh, but it did work. And to Carter's credit, Volcker warned him of that. And Carter said, do whatever you need to do to bring inflation down. And Reagan told him the same thing. But of course, for Reagan, it was a little bit different. He'd inherited the recession that started under Carter. So uh, by four years later, we were out of the recession and both inflation was lower and unemployment was lower than when Reagan took office. So in a way, Reagan benefited from uh, Carter's move to bring in Volcker. Absolutely. Yeah. The the right monetary policy started uh, with Carter. He just wasn't in office to benefit, to to benefit from that monetary policy. That's right. Um, Uh, Go ahead. One one way politicians, as opposed to central bankers, uh, get it wrong is when they respond like Nixon did to inflation with price controls. Price That's controls. Price controls. And in America. Are, and people are, t- yes, <laughs> we have had them and people are talking about them again. So it's a reason to be concerned. But trying to control prices with price controls is like trying to uh, control the temperature of boiling water by breaking the thermometer. I know. How do you, how would that even work? I mean, that's are you referring to when he was uh, in the 1970s? Uh, he was yeah, trying I, to control rent and all sorts of other things in the same speech where Nixon announced that he was shutting the gold window, no longer redeeming dollars for gold for foreign central banks. He didn't want it to be just a negative speech. So he said, I want to do something positive. We know this from the tapes where he discusses what he's going to say with his advisors. The famous he, tapes. OK, the famous tapes, he says. Uh, in order to you know, look like I'm in charge of things, I'm going to announce wage and price controls. So prices and wages were frozen for a while, and then they were allowed to rise only gradually. But the result was shortages of lots of things, uh, and that did not help economic recovery. And as soon as the controls came off, prices shot back up to where they would have been. Uh, the shortages went away, thank goodness, but it it only temporarily suppressed the appearance uh, of inflation. So did Nixon sort of spike inflation? I mean, he tapped it down for a while and then spike it. And then now he's left office. Now Ford Ford and Carter have to deal with this. Is that what happened? That's right. So you look at the peak of inflation in 1975 that I talked about. It started ascending rapidly in 1973. Uh, about the time then. Nixon left office. Yeah. Uh, and so Jerry Ford does what? He urges everyone to wear buttons that say whip inflation now. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go? That didn't, didn't work too well. well. Didn't have much effect. You know, this is, uh, this is tangential to the purpose of our um, podcast conversation, but I got to ask it. How does a U.S. president, I mean, he's not President Xi of China. How does a U.S. president keep control over prices? You know, let's say you have uh, a dry cleaners. The president can't tell you how much to charge or you have a hamburger joint. The president can't tell you what to do. Well, if Congress gives him the power to do so, he can create a bureaucracy. And Nixon didn't actually create that big a bureaucracy. So the the wage and price controls weren't 
very thoroughly enforced. But if you go back to World War II when we had price controls and they had the whole panoply rationing coupons and literally literally thousands of bureaucrats working for the Office of Price Administration who were going out and enforcing the laws. But there was a war and that was, uh, I assume, emergency powers, right? That's right. And that that actually made people more compliant. Um, so the enforcement problem wasn't as great as it would have been in a case where people said, what's there's no reason for controlling prices. Such as in the 1970s, right? Yeah, exactly. Is there such a thing as good inflation? Um, if you think about it as a falling purchasing power of money, no, there's nothing good about that. But there can be situations in which, say, there's a negative shock to the economy, so goods become more scarce and their prices start to rise. Uh, it's actually less harmful to let those prices rise. They're conveying information. They're telling people you need to economize on oil or whatever it is whose price has risen. It's better to allow that than to try to bring the average of prices down by tightening monetary policy so that other prices fall to offset the prices that are rising. That really doesn't make sense. So it's not really good inflation because it's a symptom of something of a bad event, a negative supply shock, but it's better to allow that than to try to stamp it out. Uh, the, the supply shock will eventually ease and people will get adjusted to the new level of prices and it shouldn't continue to rise at the same rate. So in a case of a supply shock, it's better to do nothing than to try to immediately stamp out the inflation. I asked that question, uh, whether or not there's such thing as good inflation, uh, because the case of Japan, if you recall, I don't know if, are they still in a deflationary period? I recall that for about a couple of almost decades, they were experiencing deflation and they really That's wanted right. to have inflation. That's right. And they have very low, but I think positive inflation in recent years, and they would still like to have higher inflation. Um, and a lot of people think they'd be better off with a higher inflation rate. I don't really think so. I think when you're talking about 20, 30 years of very low or negative inflation, uh, the problem is, uh, sorry, not inflation, that's, that's monetary policy, but yeah. what people really complain about is low growth. Yeah, yeah. And th they attribute the low growth to the low inflation. So th that connection, I think, is can't be there, not for 25 or 30 years, because people adjust to what the inflation rate is, and real supply decisions aren't confused by thinking that, by being disappointed by how low price, selling prices are, the way they are if you suddenly lower the price level. So I think Japan's low growth problem is due to real factors, uh, demographics and they have an aging population. They have a very aging population and they have a banking system that has been allowed to keep bad assets on the books. Uh, at least that was the problem for a long time. Um, they were discouraging, the, the government was discouraging banks from sort of pulling the plug on zombie business firms. Sort of uh, more or less subsidizing them for a while. Um, 
Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor White as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor White, you're an advocate of a free banking system. Does such a system contemplate a world without a Fed, without a central bank? <laughs> and if so, in this day and age, we talked about fiat money. How does that even control inflation? Okay. Before I get into that, there's one good thing about the Fed that I wanted to say that oh, uh, please do. I forgot to say, and that is when the pandemic started. Uh huh. People were hoarding money. Uh, they were taking these uh, stimulus checks and just hanging on to them because there wasn't much to spend them on. And if you look at the ratio of people's checking accounts to their income, those built up. So people wanted more money. And by providing more money to people, the Fed made it possible for them not to have to cut back their spending to build up their money balances. So it was, it was actually the right thing to do for the Fed to expand the money supply as much as it did in 2020. The problem we've got today with inflation is that the Fed didn't start soon enough to reverse the fast growth of the money supply when people started returning to normal, started spending off the piles of money that they had built up. Like somewhere early 2021, mid 2021, is that something like that? Right. So as economic activity picked up again uh, and people are spending off their accumulated money balances, the Fed needed to stop letting the money supply or making the money supply grow as rapidly as it did the previous year. And we're talking very rapid growth in the uh, measures of the money supply in both 2020 and 2021. Um, like. I have the numbers here somewhere, but anyway, 18, 19% per year. Um, and if people are no longer accumulating money, that's going to make prices go up uh, at a rapid rate. Pro Professor White, can the Fed actually, well, let me ask it this way. Is the Fed actually able to perceive this and act so quickly? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they are in a sense driving by looking in the rearview mirror because the price information they've got is a month out of date. It's collected mm -hmm. with a month-long, one-month lag. And the information they've got on the real output of the economy is quarterly. So that's even more lagged. But they could have responded a lot more quickly. I mean, the signs were there that we had crossed over the amount of spending that uh, the path of spending that we were on before the pandemic and that we're now in a period of unusually high spending. Could I, I, I assume that had the Fed done that, they would have uh, run into a lot of political backlash from the White House, both Mr. Trump's and Mr. Biden's, right? I think that's right. And the Fed has been very worried about 
uh, a reaction like the one I think it was Ben Bernanke had when he talked about tapering quantitative easing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There was what something was that, called 2010 or 2011. It was two, three years out of the recession. Right. And it was called the taper tantrum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they've been announcing, you know, we're going to start tightening monetary policy five months from now, four months from now, three months from now. Now, maybe they'll start next month is what they're saying now. But they could have started five, six yeah, months ago. They don't, they, they don't want to spook someone. So going back to the now that we talked about the Fed so much, now I'm afraid to ask the question again, a free banking system okay. without a Fed. Uh, uh, yeah, explain this, please. Right. So if you have a gold or silver standard, uh, then the quantity of the most basic money, which are gold and silver coins, is being governed by ultimately by the amount of gold that's being produced by gold mines. And that grows at a slow rate, as I said, like two or 3% a year. Uh, you also have money issued by banks. People didn't use gold coins. In fact, people rarely saw gold coins back around 1900. They bought uh, things with banknotes or checking accounts. Um, and the amount of banknotes or checking deposits banks could create was limited by their gold reserves. So to be prudent, banks can't create too many claims against their gold reserves relative to the reserves they've got. So the scarcity of gold reserves is limiting, uh, is keeping money in a broader sense scarce. So under that system, if I may interrupt for one moment, please, uh, Professor White, could it be that you go to the bank you, you, you write a note for a million dollars. You have $5 million in the bank, but the okay. bank says, no, 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 no. You do have 5 million. We are not saying that you don't, but you cannot write a million dollar check, which is one fifth of your holding here because we don't have enough gold. <laughs> Did that ever happen? Could that happen under such a system? That it's not it, that you don't have the money. It's that the mm -hmm. bank doesn't have the gold. Well, if the bank has reserves that are less than 20% of one customer's account, that bank is not holding enough reserves. <laughs> yeah. But they, I mean, this, the famous situation where a bank doesn't have enough reserves is a bank run. Yeah, so, yeah so, exactly. That's what I was so referring to. One potential problem with not having a central bank and not having deposit insurance is that if bank runs were a common occurrence, then you'd have problems. But if bank runs were a common occurrence, uh, you'd think that banks that were able to avoid being run upon mm -hmm. would outcompete the banks that are weak and run prone. And that's what you see historically uh, in country like Canada, where they didn't restrict banks the way we did in the US. So the banks were larger and better capitalized and better branched out. You didn't have bank runs and panics. Uh, but you didn't need a central bank in a situation like that because the supply of money was regulating itself, you might say, or was being governed by the supply of gold in the world as a whole. So if that's the case, why did Canada go to a system in which they now have a central bank, right? They were one of the last countries to do it. They didn't get a central bank till 1935. Oh, that's late, yeah. And, it, and it's actually a kind of curious problem because, get this, the bankers in Canada were against it. They didn't huh. want to have they didn't want to have a central bank. So but how, the, 
the Go government ahead. the government of Canada wanted to have a central bank uh, for two reasons. One, a lot of people thought it would help them get out of the depression if they had a central bank. If they'd looked around the world, they would not have seen that pattern that countries without central banks are doing worse than countries with central banks. Britain and even Germany had a central bank back then in the 1930s. And, yeah. And and the U.S. had a central bank. Exactly. Most countries had central banks, not Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Venezuela. There were just a few exceptions left. Um, but the second reason was the Canadian government didn't get to send anybody to conferences of uh, international conferences of central bankers. <laughs> they were not in the club of the cool kids. I get exactly. It. And that sounds ridiculous, but this is the serious answer provided in a, a study by two Canadian economists who were trying to figure out this puzzle. Why they, did why did we get a central bank in 1935? They didn't get to go to Jackson Hole in August every year. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Um, so but, go ahead, sir. So back to the story. Canada is one example. Scotland is, a, is an example I've used. Sweden, Switzerland, people have studied lots of examples of sophisticated modern banking systems, but with no central bank. So nobody has a monopoly on issuing currency. No political agency controls the clearing system. That's controlled by the banks themselves. Uh, Switzerland and Scotland, though, don't are not on the gold standard, right? No, nobody is anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at that time, they were. At that time, they were. Do you think it's even practicable for an economy of our size to be on the gold standard again? Yeah, I mean, these, the largest economy in the world, the United States, had a long period without a central bank. And as you noted earlier, economic growth was pretty good. Yeah. If you look before and after, it doesn't seem like the Fed did anything to speed up economic growth in real terms. The Fed was kind of irrelevant all the way to kind of Volcker. That's when most ordinary. Well, I, I, it played a role in the Great Depression uh, in a kind of roundabout way. In the mm -hmm. earlier, in the earlier panics, the bank clearinghouse associations did something to try to alleviate the panic. They issued more currency. They acted as lenders of last resort to member banks that were running out of reserves. Which is a positive thing. Which is a positive thing. When the central, when the Great Depression comes along, the Fed didn't do any of that. And so it did less than the commercial banks had done for themselves. So this is a negative role. This is not a positive uh, history for, in fact, wasn't Ben Bernanke a historian of the Great Depression? He must yes. have learned a great deal from that. That's right. And while he was on the board of governors of the Fed before he became chairman, uh, he gave a talk at a 90th birthday celebration for Milton Friedman. And quite, quite remarkably, Bernanke said, you're right. We messed up in the Great Depression. But thanks to you and what you've taught us, we won't do it again. So uh, I think he kind of stayed true to his word and he didn't ratchet back the supply of money in the Great Recession, right? That's right. He wanted to err on the side of generating more inflation, ironically, than having a deeper recession. Ironically, the last time we had deflation, a 12-month inflation rate below zero, it was under Bernanke's watch. Oh, wow, which is similar <laughs> it, it to... Was, it was in the middle of the Great Recession. Yeah, it, it, which also happened during the Great Depression, uh, deflation. 
I'm referring to. If you want our audience to remember just one point about inflation after everything we've talked about, what would that be? What would you select for that one point? Well, inflation is a matter of supply and demand. It's a decline in the relative price or purchasing power of the monetary unit. So it's due to the supply of money growing faster than the demand for money. And most of the variation is on the supply side, not the demand side. So inflation results from more and more dollars chasing each basket of goods and services. And it's mostly more dollars and not fewer baskets of goods and services. Okay. Wonderful. Professor White, thank you so much for educating me. I learned a great deal. And, and uh, if I can say one more thing, oh, please, uh, please. Let, me put it, let me put in a plug for the book I'm writing. <laughs> oh, please do. Uh, the working title is Better Money, Fiat, Gold, or Bitcoin. So Bitcoin. Think, well, it's a candidate. So I think it deserves to be evaluated. If we want to think about how to improve our monetary system, by all means, think about ways to better constrain fiat monetary policy, but also think about alternative models. Uh, a modern gold standard is one alternative. A Bitcoin standard is another alternative. And you may decide that it's not worth the trouble, that we can still control inflation coming out of our central bank. Uh, but if the current inflation has convinced you otherwise, then you need to look at these alternatives. Wonderful. Could you repeat the name of your book again, please? The title? Uh, better Money, Fiat, Gold, or Bitcoin? Question mark. When can we expect that? I'll have to talk to my publisher. <laughs> I, I, I literally just finished the first draft of the manuscript yesterday. And oh, wonderful. Out. And I assume you'll put it on, the, on your academic homepage because we'll, we'll include the caption to your academic homepage and people, uh, our listeners, can, uh, can reach it via that. Professor White, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. Thanks very much. It was fun. Same here. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. 
Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the PL.News.